Life's short. Get a divorce. That was the attention-getting ad campaign of an infamous Chicago law firm in the early 2000s. Life's short. Get a divorce. I don't think our society is there yet. Marriage is still highly valued and normal for most couples here in America. But an honest assessment of the American mindset says that marriage is a temporary relationship. Marriage is primarily for self-fulfillment and personal happiness. And this is proven by the fact that when Americans are no longer fulfilled and no longer happy, marriage becomes disposable and divorce is easy. Well, most Christians think differently, don't we? We don't think marriage is a temporary relationship that's disposable. We don't think divorce should be easy. The Christian mindset typically thinks about marriage as a very serious commitment that's built on true love and genuine promises made through our wedding vows. Most Christians would think that divorce is a last resort only when we have finally reached the end of our rope. But friends, we're going to see in our sermon text this morning that the Bible's teaching and Jesus' mindset about marriage and divorce is very different than our culture and very different than most Christians. Our sermon text is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Would you please take your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. Please get one of the black ones there at your feet. You're going to want to see this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 through 16. This is our 20th study in Paul's letter. It's the next text. And today, Paul wants to talk to us about divorce. Now, it's important to note at the very beginning of this sermon that Paul was not giving instructions for marriage in this text. Here in this portion of his letter, Paul was fighting against divorce in the church. So this text and my sermon is going to feel rather lopsided this morning. Listen, there's much to say about marriage, about how to build a healthy marriage, but this text is about divorce. So this morning, this sermon is about divorce. And before I go any farther, I know that what we're going to talk about today can be a really sensitive subject. I have every desire to help all of you and not to hurt anyone. There are people here this morning who are living in constant pain 
of a difficult marriage. I want to fight for you and the health of your marriage this morning. Hurting friend, my prayer is that this scripture fills you with hope and perseverance for God's glory, even in the midst of a difficult marriage. I'm also aware that there are people here who have experienced in the past and continue to experience the trauma of divorce. You probably know people like that in your own family or here in your own church. I know that what we're about to talk about today might be particularly difficult for you, having been divorced. Listen, divorce is painful for everyone involved. It's not God's desire. It's not God's design for marriage. It's not the way it's supposed to be. In my experience, I have found few people who hate divorce more than those who have been through one. But divorced friend, just like everyone else in the room, your past does not condemn you. The gospel gives you and all of us hope, even in the midst of failed or failing marriages. So for those who have been divorced and remarried or still unmarried, my prayer is that we can move forward together in the grace of Christ and according to the word of Christ. So as we come to this text with your Bibles open there on your laps, it's going to really be helpful to understand the context in Corinth about which Paul is writing. The context in Corinth is vital to understanding everything that Paul is about to say. Do you remember what's going on in Corinth right now? Those of you who have been here for 20 studies so far. There was a hyper-spirituality going on in the church that was leading them to a form of asceticism. They believed that by denying themselves physically, they were going to achieve the highest amount of spirituality. Denying yourself physically leads to the highest levels of spirituality. The problem is that's not true. It's a false gospel. It's a false religion. Last week in verse 1 through 9, married Christians thought that the way forward to be the most spiritual was to be celibate. Even in marriage, that the highest form of spirituality would be celibacy. And in our sermon text this week, verse 10 through 16, Paul addresses two specific kinds of married people. So if you're in the room here, two kinds of married people. Some were Christians who were married to other Christians. Some were Christians who were married to non-Christians. Well, in both cases, 
they thought that the best way forward for them to a high to achieve the highest possible spirituality was to divorce each other so that they could live this life of celibacy and singleness devoted to the Lord. Maybe some of the Christians who became Christians after they were married now thought that I know that Christians aren't supposed to be married to non-Christians, so I don't want this to affect my spiritual status, and so maybe now I should divorce my non-Christian spouse. The bottom line was Christians were divorcing Christians and Christians were divorcing non-Christians. And Paul says, stop it! That's in the Greek. Paul wants to talk to the church at Corinth, and by way of inspiration and preservation, he wants to talk to the church here in Winchester, to me and you, about divorce. He doesn't want us to have an American mindset. He doesn't want us to have a religious or a Christian mindset. He wants us to have a biblical, a Jesus mindset. So, let's read our sermon text. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 through 16. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is not, or pardon me, who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word. Amen. So just by way of an overview, verses 10 through 16, let's take a look at Paul's big point here. Look at the structure. Verse 10 and 11 are unique because what Paul says here is I'm about to to remind you of what the Lord says, not me. See that in verse 10? To the married I give this charge, not me, but the Lord. Now, that does not mean that when he gets to verse 12, he's saying, I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm not sure about this. No. What he's saying is, you guys remember what Jesus is teaching. Now, I'm about to apply 
the teaching of Jesus to this new situation where there are mixed marriages between Christians and non-Christians. So in verse 10 and 11, this is Jesus' universal teaching concerning divorce. It's very clear. Married people should not divorce their spouse. Look at verse 10. Not wives, not husbands. Married people should not divorce their spouse. Right in the middle there, verse 11, those who have divorced should remain unmarried or reconcile with their spouse. So if there's been a divorce, there should be no remarriage. This is the teaching of Jesus. We'll take a look at that in a minute. But then in verse 12 through 16, notice he says to the rest, so not the Christian couples, but to the rest of the couples, those who are Christians married to non-Christians, he says that over and over again, the unbelieving and the brothers and the sisters. If a Christian has a non-Christian spouse, here's the key, who wants to remain married. Do you see There's consent, there's agreement, there's a desire on the non-Christian's part to stay in the marriage. What's Paul's clear instruction? Do not divorce your spouse. And, And whereas in the beginning, those of you who like language, whereas the beginning it was indicative, should not, Paul is very clear with the the force of the imperative verb here. You must not, Christian, you must not. You must not divorce your non-Christian spouse. And then he gives three reasons. Reason number one, the sanctity of marriage. Reason number two, the peace of the home. And reason number three, the hope of salvation. We're going to get to all of those in just a minute. I want you to notice that there in verse 15, he gives the unfortunate situation, verse 14, where it's not a Christian who's divorcing, but a non-Christian who divorces, leaves, abandons their Christian spouse. And he says there, look at it, verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. That's actually stronger in the original language. It's let them separate, let them divorce. And when they do, Paul says the unbelieving, why, uh, pardon me, in such cases, the brother, sister, the Christian is not enslaved. Now, we do not have time this morning to explore all that that means. We'll talk about it just a little bit. But what we're sure is they're no longer bound and enslaved by the marriage or by the laws of marriage. Whether whether remarriage is then acceptable is debated among good Christians. But Paul's main point here Verse 10, Jesus says, Christians must not, should not divorce their spouse. 12 and 13, Paul says, Christians must not divorce non-Christian spouses who want to remain married. Paul's main point is very simple. Christian, hear me, Christian. Divorce is not an option for you. 
Divorce is not an option for you. We will read in just a moment that in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives what seems to be an exception for persistent, unrepentant adultery. Good Christians disagree over whether that is an exception to this or not. But what Paul is doing here is saying Christians' divorce is not an option. When you reach the end of your rope, tie another knot. Stay married. But I'm not happy. I'm not fulfilled. Divorce isn't an option for you. Under the vast, vast majority of circumstances for Christians, divorce is not an option. Now, I want to make one note before we continue. Look at verse 12 and 13. Uh, pardon me, not 12 and 13. Look at verse 10 and 11. Sorry. Verse 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, the wife should not separate from her husband. Do you see the word separate? And then look at the bottom of verse 11. The husband should not divorce his wife. So the question is, does that, is that talking about what we understand as separation and divorce? And the answer is no, it is not. In our legal system, there is separation, even a legal separation, and then there's divorce. That's not what it's talking about here. Here's how I know that for sure, because the, there in verse 10, where it says the wife should not separate from her husband, that original word in the Greek is the exact same word that Jesus uses when he says, let no man separate. It's just another word for divorce. So the wife should not separate from her husband. The husband should not separate from his wife. Or the wife should not divorce her husband. The husband should not divorce. They are synonyms. To separate means to, to leave or to depart. To divorce means to send away. Corinth was a Greek city that was under ancient Roman law. It was the Greco-Roman time period when Rome ruled the world. And according to Roman law, this phrase, quote, take your things to yourself, was the formal statement by which a man legally divorced his wife. Take your things to yourself. Under Jewish law, he sent her away. Under Jewish law, not Roman law, under Jewish law, a man could divorce, put away his wife without her agreement. But a woman could request divorce, but her husband had to agree. That was not the case in Corinth. Either spouse could initiate and secure a divorce in the Greco-Roman Roman culture. In fact, divorce was so prolific 
in the Greco-Roman world at this time that Seneca, who was a statesman philosopher in Rome during this exact same time, around 55 AD, Seneca says this about the women. Few women seem to blush at divorce, and many, quote, reckon their years not by the number of their lovers, but by the number of their husbands. They leave home in order to marry and marry in order to divorce. Divorce was common and prolific in that society. So while separation and divorce might be synonyms and the same thing here, friends, I just want to pause and say that while divorce is not an option for a Christian, I have counseled many times that separation is a good option. Never a desirable one. But in cases of danger and abuse, in cases where the environment of the home is oppressive, then it is good sometimes. It is a good option and a necessary option for one spouse or the other to protect themselves and their children by separation. But again, for the Christian, divorce is not an option. Paul's fighting fighting against divorce in this text. Would there be any reason for a pastor such as myself to fight against divorce in 21st century America? Certainly. I want to fight for marriages and against divorce here because it is far too common, friends. We get to the end of our rope. We find that last resort way too quick. Divorce is an option for many Christians, and today I'd like to stand here and argue my way biblically so that you think it is not an option for you, unless there is this most rare possibility of persistent, unrepentant adultery. So what I'd like to do is I would like to highlight from this the four reasons that Paul gives for saying divorce is not an option for Christians. Four reasons Paul gives for saying that divorce is not an option. The first reason is from the universal teaching of Jesus, and then the final three are specific to mixed marriages. So I think that that's really important that you understand it has to remain in the context of mixed marriages. But all four of these uh, reasons will help us to stay married and avoid divorce. If we'll listen, if we'll receive, if we'll obey. Four reasons divorce is not an option for Christians. Well, this first universal reason, as we can see there in verse 10... We might say, we might say, but we're not, that reason number one is this is the teaching of your master, your Lord. Look there in verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The Lord means this is the one that you have called the Lord of your life. When he speaks, you listen. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? That should call every one of us to obedience. 
But rather than merely saying that we're going to stay married out of obedience to Jesus and that Jesus forbids divorce and so we'll accept that, I think we should ask ourselves the question, why did Jesus forbid divorce? Why? Which leads us then to the first reason that divorce is not an option. Because God has joined you together. Because God has joined you together. This is the mindset of Jesus about marriage and the reason he forbids divorce. Would you please take your Bibles and look at the teaching of Jesus? For those of you who are uh, Christians, this is your Lord, and we want to see his words here in black and white and red. (laughs) Mark chapter 10, um, Aaron was kind enough to read for us earlier another one of the teachings of Jesus found in Matthew, but for this one, I think Mark 10 is the closest parallel to where Paul might be referring. Mark chapter 10, uh, it's the same scene. Um, Mark just records it a little bit differently than Matthew does. The Pharisees come up and they are testing Jesus. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Jesus answers them in verse 3. So are you looking? Mark 10, verse 3. What did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, let a man, pardon me, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. After quoting Genesis 2, Jesus adds his own commentary. So, Jesus says, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Could you read verse 9 with me, please, out loud? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus teaches that marriage is a one flesh union between a man and a woman. It's a one flesh union, and it's not merely a human act. Do you see what he says there? What therefore God has joined together. Married friend, when you took your vows at the front of that church or before the justice of the peace, it wasn't just you and your spouse there. It was a work of God that joined you together. 
Jesus teaches that marriage is both a one flesh union of man and woman and a work of God. And therefore, because he knows this about marriage, therefore Jesus teaches that divorce is a man or a woman attempting to separate what is inseparable and attempting to undo the work of God. And because Jesus sees marriage this way and divorce this way, then notice that Jesus teaches that remarriage is forbidden. Here in this text, Jesus teaches that remarriage is forbidden because he understands that marriage is a one flesh union and work of God that doesn't stop until death. Luke chapter 16, verse 18, the words of Jesus. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. These are strong words that most Christians will not even receive. I appreciate what John Piper says about this. Piper says, Jesus' opposition to remarriage seems to be based on the unbreakableness of the marriage bond by anything but death. If you want to see this a little bit more, read Romans chapter 7. Piper continues, Only God, not man, can end this one flesh relationship. Isn't that interesting to think about? That when God unites it, Because it's a work of God, then only God can undo it. But we don't see it that way. We think we united, therefore we can undo. And we know God might sanction or not sanction. Not Jesus. Only God, not man, can undo this one flesh relationship. Piper continues, this is why remarriage is called adultery by Jesus. He assumes that the first marriage is still binding. God ends the one flesh relationship of marriage only through the death of the one of the spouses. Marriage, pardon me. Divorce is not an option, number one, because God has joined you together. And because God has done this work in this one flesh union, Paul says, Christians, don't undo it. And then there's even a greater dimension. Paul does not merely encourage us to say no to divorce. Paul in Ephesians tells us that Jesus uses marriage to display the gospel and that every one of our marriages is a picture of this one flesh union. So say no to divorce because Jesus has married you. Jesus has brought you into an unconditional, unending union. Therefore, secure your spouse in that same kind of an unending union. Marriage is three verbs. 
the man leaves, the man holds fast to, and they become one. Friends, that's the gospel in three verbs. Jesus left. Jesus held fast to us, and we are permanently one by faith and grace with the Lord Jesus Christ. And his resurrection secures this relationship until death do we part. Jesus will never die. And so therefore, our union will stay forever. God has joined you together, Christian. Divorce isn't an option. Number two. That's the teaching of Jesus. Now Paul comes in verse 12 through 16, and he gives us three more reasons, particularly about mixed marriages. And this, I think, was the real issue that was going on in Corinth, don't you? It was, yes, the hyper-spirituality and the asceticism, but I think for sure a lot of the Corinthians were married, they became Christians, and they're like, now what are we supposed to do? He spends the majority of time addressing this, which shows us that was probably the biggest issue that they were dealing with and needed the most reasons. So rather than just giving the one reason up here that universally God joins you together, he gives now three reasons why Christians should never divorce their non-Christian spouse. It's absurd. So to the rest, I say, and he says, I'm about to apply the teaching of Jesus to this situation, so I, not the Lord, that if any brother, Christian, has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents, agrees, wants to live with him, he should not, must not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever, he consents to live with her, she should not, must not divorce him. Why? Verse 14. Four. Four. Here comes reason number two. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. What in the world does that mean? I want to give you three interpretations very quickly. One that I believe is absolutely wrong. The second one I think is super common and plausible. And then the third one I'm more convinced of. Here's what this doesn't mean. Marriage is a means of grace that saves this unbeliever and your children. That's not true. How do I know that? Because in verse 16, he proposes the fact that how do you know that by staying married, you might save your husband or you might save your wife. Marriage is not a means of saving grace no matter what any church or even Christian religion says. Not for the unbelieving spouse or the children. Salvation is always by grace through what? Faith. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, what? Believes. The second interpretation is the most common interpretation. I'd be happy if this was true. It might be true. Why is divorce not an option? Because staying in the marriage exposes the unbelieving spouse and your children to the sanctifying influence of God and his gospel. Paul Gardner puts it this way. They're in a privileged position as they benefit from the tangible reflection of Christ lived out before them day by day. For children with a Christian parent, the advantage of being in a home where the covenant Lord rules and is worshipped, his word is taught and understood, his promise is explained, and they're brought up to know the need for faith and worship is a great benefit indeed. And we can all say, Amen. So the unbelieving spouse is not saved, but is brought into the saving influence of the gospel, and so are your children. That's the most common interpretation of this. I'd be fine if that's true, but I'm not convinced of it. Here's the third, and in my opinion, more convincing interpretation. David Garland says it this way, Paul's not arguing for salvation or sanctification, which is to be made holy, sanctification by proxy. In other words, my salvation, my holiness doesn't make my spouse holy. He's not arguing for salvation or sanctification by proxy, but he is making an argument against divorce. Remember, that's the context. His basic argument is this, mixed Marriages have the same status as Christian marriages and should not be abandoned. Continuing the marriage accords with God's design for marriage. So you have these new Christians who are married to probably idol-worshiping pagans, and they're going... I know that Christians aren't supposed to marry, but what am I supposed to do? Maybe I should divorce my spouse. The key reason that I believe that this is the proper interpretation is because of the support that Paul uses with the children. Notice what he contrasts being made holy against. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. These Christians feel like their spouse, being not a believer, is going to make them unclean, and that now this whole union, my marriage, is unclean, unacceptable before God. And Paul says, no. The fact that you're in it, the fact that, that you have become a Christian, makes your marriage right before God. Your marriage is clean before God. Stay in it. And oh, by the way, would you ever think this about your kids? If your kids are not Christians, are you going to leave them too? No. 
parenting your children, staying married to your spouse is now God's call for your life. It's sanctified. This is right for you. That's what I think it means. Take it or leave it. But Paul's instructions for mixed marriages, reason number two why divorce is not an option, is because God considers your marriage holy. God considers your marriage holy. It's not unclean. It's not unholy. Don't leave it. Stay married. When God looks at you, he's not displeased. He says your marriage is just as holy as if you were married to another Christian. Reason number three. So then Paul gives this, but if, you know, right in the middle of a flow of thought here, he kind of gives a parenthetical, hypothetical situation. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let him separate. In such cases, the Christian is not enslaved. And then he makes this strange, this strange statement. God has called you, Christian, God has called you to peace. What does that mean? Well, Listen, I love the ESV, but the ESV, I think, has left out a very important word that's clearly in the original language here. Right after that, there's a but. God has called you to peace, and that but makes it another reason. That, that conjunction says, here's a different point. This is a contrasting point, so it really should be read like this. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, but God has called you to peace. In other words, you stay in your marriage for something about peace. Now, what is it about peace? Well, this is why we don't just dive in and grab texts and pull them out and make them mean whatever we want. Because this same phrase, called you in or called you to, is used eight times in the next text. Look at verse 17 through 24. Eight different times this same phrase, called you in, is used. But here, for some reason, the English translates it called you to. It's the exact same words. There's no reason to switch from to to in. Eight times in over here, one time to over here. I think it's because they were trying to interpret it. I think they just confused it, my interpretive opinion, along with a bunch of other commentators and scholars that I read this week. In verse 17 through 24, just look down through there. The same combination of call and in says that you have been called in Christ in a certain condition. When you were called to Jesus, maybe you were circumcised or uncircumcised, maybe you were a bondservant, or maybe you were free. And what's Paul's point? However you are called, remain in that situation. If you were circumcised, you don't have to do anything about that. If you were uncircumcised, you don't have to get circumcised. If you were a bondservant, you don't have to do anything. If you were free, you don't have remain in that condition. Back up just one paragraph before what he's saying is when you were called to Jesus, when you became a Christian, there was peace in your marriage. 
You know how we know that? Because your spouse still wants to be married. So don't divorce them and bring chaos to your home. What in the world? God called you in a peaceful marriage and now you're going to destroy it? No. Christian, don't divorce your non-Christian spouse who wants to stay married to you. Reason number three, God has called you to maintain the peace of your home, both for your spouse and for your children. Reason number four, verse 16. So what we've seen so far is that divorce is not an option for Christians. Number one, because God has joined you together. Number two, because God considers your marriage holy. Number three, because God has called you to maintain the peace of your home. And number four, because God might save you, might might save your spouse through you. God might use you to save your spouse. God might use you to save your spouse. Okay, verse 16. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? That is a future possibility that you might save your husband. Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is a hope, not a guarantee, but it certainly does fuel staying married, doesn't it? Paul says, stay in that marriage. Staying there becomes a mission of love for your non-Christian spouse, for your non-Christian children. Christian, you have the opportunity every single day in the most intimate way to live out the gospel before your non-Christian spouse so that, like you, they might repent and believe and be saved. Don't you want that for your spouse? Peter addressed this to wives who weren't just in non-Christian marriages. They were in difficult. marriages to non-Christian men. Do you want to look at this? 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. So not a peaceful, sweet marriage to a non-Christian man, but Peter actually talks to wives who are likely suffering some kind of of persecution within their home. I don't know what it is. I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate. But in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. How will that happen? Verse 2. When they, your husbands... See your respectful and pure conduct. So wives, don't don't let your adorning be external. 
braiding of your hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Mission of love. To take the gospel to a non-Christian spouse. So why is divorce not an option for Christians? Because number four, God might use you to save your spouse. Well, I don't know if this um, particular mixed marriage situation applies to many in the room. So let me just make three broad, broad and brief applications to everyone in our church. Here's what I think that we need to take away from this text, for sure, for all of us. Number one, let's submit ourselves to the authority of Christ through his word about everything, including marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Isn't that what Paul is saying here? Submit yourself to the teaching of Christ, the authority of Christ. What does Christ say about marriage, divorce, remarriage? And then Christians are those people who believe it and then obey it. One of the big takeaways from chapter 6 and chapter 7 is that we, just like the church at Corinth, we don't view sex, marriage, divorce, or remarriage the way God does. And we shouldn't be listening and getting our definitions and instructions from the world around us, but we need to be looking to Jesus Christ and the word of Christ as our final authority for every matter, including sensitive, difficult matters like marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Christians, let's submit ourselves to the authority of Christ through his word. Will you do that? And let's not stop, even when life gets hard. Even when our friends counsel us differently. Even when nothing around us seems like we should continue down this path except for Jesus. And he should be the one person that we obey, even if every other voice says differently. Second application. Let's look to the gospel marriage, the great marriage, to build our marriages. The best way to prevent divorce is to have a healthy, vibrant marriage. How do you have a healthy, vibrant marriage? This text doesn't deal with that, but the Bible does. And especially Ephesians chapter 5, I'm not going to take the time to go there, but friends, when you look at the gospel marriage that Christ brought you into and secures you in, then that will nourish and fuel your marriage. So look to the gospel, husband, 
wife, every day. Look to the gospel by spending time with your Lord in his word and through prayer. The deeper you go into Jesus's love for you, the deeper your love will be for your spouse. The more you experience the life-giving grace of Jesus to you and your sin, the more you will be able to share that life-giving grace with your spouse when they sin against you. The more you feel the eternal security of the new covenant that Jesus secured by his death and resurrection, the more permanent your marriage covenant will be. And your spouse won't have to wonder what you're going to do. Does your spouse feel as secure in your marriage covenant as you do with your husband, the Lord Jesus Christ? Third application. Let's make our marriages a community project. I mean, my marriage is private. I don't want anybody messing around in my marriage. I don't want anybody knowing my dirty laundry. I don't want anybody. Okay. Listen, the church is a means of God's grace to cultivate and fight for marriages. We need to create a culture here in our church where we can be honest about the real struggles that we experience in marriage. When we share prayer requests, they shouldn't just be about sicknesses and my aunt so-and-so. They should be about me and my problems and our marriage so that we can pray for one another and fight for one another's souls and marriages. Let's make marriage a community project here in this church. Let's commit to helping one another cultivate healthy marriages. Let's give hurting spouses life-giving truth rather than the easy way out. Let's hold sinning spouses accountable for their sin all the way through and including church discipline if we need to. Why? Because marriage is a big deal in God's eyes, even if it's disposable in our culture. Oh, may the gospel be on display in our marriages. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your your sacrifice that secures us. We don't deserve that. It's your grace to us. Thank you for the security of knowing that you love us unconditionally and unendingly. And I pray that you would cause us to 
to love our spouses this way. And I pray that every marriage in our church would reflect the great gospel marriage. We cannot do that on our own. It's not going to be sheer determination and self-discipline. It's going to take your grace, your spirit, your word to change us from the inside out. It's going to take your church to surround us and cultivate our marriage and then get in the way when we try to run away. God, please glorify yourself and the great gospel marriage through every marriage at Winchester Baptist Church. This is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. <laughs>